to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, we are excited to be joined by Philip Rathgeb, who is a lecturer in social policy at the School of Social and Political Science at the University of Edinburgh, an associated fellow at the University of Constance. And I just looked up where Constance was, and it, it looks like a, a lovely city on a, on a lake right on the border of Switzerland. You're a very, very lucky guy to be working there. <laughs> Thanks, Lev. Um, I'm in Edinburgh-based, though, um, but you're right. Constance is a beautiful place, yeah. So today we're here to talk about a paper that you co-authored um, entitled Authoritarian Values and the Welfare State. We're going to be talking about what you call populist radical right parties or PRRPs and what they prefer, what they want, what kind of policies that they, that they prefer. So I'm wondering if we could first start with what countries you chose to focus on. Um, and whether or not there are significant differences between these populist radical right parties. So we've been looking at eight countries in particular um, for one reason, because that was the, the survey we had available, which was, you know, eight Western European countries. In terms of differences, one way of defining these radical right parties is to say that they are based on an ideology of nativism and authoritarianism. So nativism essentially refers to a xenophobic version of nationalism, which is essentially to say natives first and foreign ideas, foreign people uh, should not be part of the national community. And authoritarianism refers to an ideology that, um, you know, places high value on deservingness and authority. So there should be a strong state that punishes um, behavior that deviates from traditional social norms. So that is um, the ideological core of these two of these parties. So nativism on the one hand, and authoritarianism on the other, and and in Europe, um, these parties, you know, um, to some extent, they have a long history. But the electoral breakthrough of these parties was essentially the 1990s and in the 2000s. So that was also the time where they um, they became acceptable for coalitions um, and where they. Um, we're no longer considered pariahs, so to speak. But they, they haven't really made it into all of the parliaments in Europe. So that the question back then was, you know, why do you have a ra strong radical right party in a country like France, for example, or uh, Austria or Italy, but not in Germany and Sweden. So that was the 2000s, essentially. And in the 2010s, what we could see is, you know, a, a growing emergence of radical right parties across countries. And to the extent that, you know, the only exception where you don't have a strong radical right party or one that is represented parliament is actually Ireland. Um, to some extent, Portugal and Spain bucked the trend as well. But more recently, they also got the, the Vox party in Spain and Chega in Portugal. So you could say they turned into mainstream parties and to, to more normalized parties in Europe. And we were interested in the social policy implications of, of that trend. Do you have any idea why the, the 90s or the, the 2000s? Why this moment? The debate is essentially couched in terms of cultural backlash on the one hand. That is to say, um, you know, voters, they resist immigration and that's why they vote for the radical right. So it's about values. It's like um, values around immigration, multiculturalism, refugees and the like. And on the other hand, explanation is economic distress. So that is to say, you know, voters who lost out um, in economic terms, they resist by voting those radical right parties. Um, th that has been the, the kind of vibrant debate in comparative politics. And more recently, 
what the evidence suggests is that these factors are tightly interlinked. So it's not either or, but they are interrelated so that um, it's both factors in the sense that those who have declining economic prospects, uh, declining employment prospects, are also more likely to hold anti-immigration attitudes. And anti-immigration attitudes is you know, a very strong predictor of voting for the radical right. And in the 1990s and 2000s, we, we can see the politicization of immigration, which also has to do, you know, on the one hand, you know, objectively, there was growing immigration rates, but also um, these big economic conflicts of, say, you know, the post-war era between, say, Keynesianism um, and neoclassicism, the left versus right, that these distinctions um, declined um, in the sense that there was a new neoliberal consensus with the implication that, um, with the implication that political conflict shifted to those debates where there were actually partisan divides, and this is more on the um, cultural issues. So, if in macroeconomic management, when it comes to capitalism, when it comes to bread and butter issues, there is less of a conflict here, it essentially also opens the door for the radical right to politicize precisely those issues on which this party family strives, which is immigration and multiculturalism, for example. And that has been the, the context, uh, the, the background against which we could observe um, the rise of the radical right in the 90s, 2000s. And then, you know, there were some short-term factors that reinforced that dynamic, such as the refugee crisis in the 2010s. The New York Times ran a, uh, a very interesting series of articles in the last year where they show you different places in the United States, just photographs, and it's kind of like a quiz um, where you you have to guess if that area where the photograph was taken went for Trump or, or went for Biden. And um, basically, every place that's green in the United States, you know, photos of fields or forests, maybe one house in the in the middle of the woods, they went Trump. And then the places that were were gray and brown. Uh, like, uh, you know, big buildings or my neighborhood with brownstones went for Biden. Do you see that sort of rural urban divide in Europe as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. So um, the, the typical radical right voter, if you want to call it like that, mostly lives in rural places or smaller towns, is usually male, usually has lower levels of education and works either in a, as a small shop owner or what's uh, sometimes called petty bourgeoisie, like small shop owners or farmers or policemen, or works in blue-collar production sectors. Yeah, so those are the two electoral strongholds of, of that party. And as you rightly say, um, there, there is a ge geographical dimension here in the sense that the radical right makes stronger inroads in more rural places and yeah, and the U.S. is one example of that. However, the U.S. Is, is interesting, a bit like Eastern Europe, actually, in the sense that this is a center-right party that adopted radical right agendas. So you don't necessarily need to have a radical right party in order to get radical right policies. And Trump is a, is a good example of that in the sense that um, a lot of what he did was a mirror image of the European radical right when it comes to immigration, for example, the the border wall to Mexico or the travel ban for Muslims. And, um, and this line of policy agency, it, it resonates very much with what the European radical right is after. And in Eastern Europe, you also have center-right parties that gradually turned into radical right parties. And the most 
prominent examples of that are the, the Polish Peace Party under Jaroslaw Kaczynski and Fidesz in Hungary under Viktor Orban. So that, that is a, a, an interesting um, distinction here, I think. You know, when Trump ran, um, there was a sense, at least during the primaries in, in 15 and, and 16, that he was running as a different kind of Republican, well, in many ways, but specifically he was not running as a free market neoliberal Republican, or at least that was the perception. He was running as a nativist, but he was also saying, you know, we want, we want to keep Medicare. We want to, we want to expand Social Security while everybody else seemed to want to, to, want to cut and privatize. So I'm, this gets to the heart of your paper. How do we describe the people on the, the radical populist right, both the voters and the politicians in terms of policy objectives? It, it, let us recall that these parties, they, they emerged in, to some extent as anti-tax parties in the 1970s and 1980s. So they mobilized small shop owners in particular, like that, that resented especially bracket creep. Um, like, you know, after the second oil price shock, what you had was um, stagnating incomes more or less, but still very high tax rates and the radical right mobilized against that. And this was, you know, on behalf of small shop owners in particular against the social democratic class compromise, if you want. And what changed in the 1990s, in the 2000s and later on is that their electoral class composition changed a lot in the sense that more and more working class voters so, um, but we have to be careful here when we talk about the working class. So that is, you know, again, male blue collar workers in particular. So it's not, you know, the lower service class that is more diverse in terms of ethnicity and gender. But they, these voters gradually shifted to the radical right. And as you say, you know, that there was um, this assumption and um, this expectation that in response to that, the radical right has to react. And one way to react to this is that they adopt a more pro-welfare stance. So they, they support welfare states on behalf of um, male blue, uh, blue collar workers. However, and this is uh, where our paper kicks in, um, that this is uh, a bit too easily couched in the sense that ideology plays a role here. Um, in a sense that, so what, what we find in terms of our survey is they are not pro-welfare as such, but more pro-elderly. And this also has to do with their ideology of authoritarianism, which places emphasis on authority, deservingness. So those who work hard, they deserve our support. And who has a record of hard working? It's typically the elderly, right? So they built the country after World War II and so on. And therefore, um, they deserve our support and we shouldn't um, touch their pension entitlements. Still, also there is actually a qualification. So it's about, again, blue collar workers who typically have full-time employment, uninterrupted employment, and are therefore you know, considered often labor market insiders, at least in the West European contract, context, relatively protected job, even though their long-term employment prospects might be um, challenged due to technological change. But they are the ones who have long and uninterrupted employment biographies, and therefore they benefit from pension insurance, more like, say, a lone parent, for example, or somebody that is in precarious employment who doesn't accumulate this contribution as public pension. So that, that is one thing, yeah? In this regard, you could say there is a pro-welfare return, but it's just a small part in the sense that 
when it comes to the unemployed, when it comes to unemployment protection and especially workfare, so the conditions under which you have to accept the job, there they are very well authoritarian. That is to say, you have to search for a job. You also have to accept maybe worse jobs. Otherwise, you should be punished. You should see um, unemployment benefit cuts. So when it comes to the unemployed, there is a strong um, rhetoric and discourse, and this also relates to what voters want, that they might be lazy free riders and immigrants might be overrepresented. Yeah, so there is this nativist um, subtext here to say, look, um, it's immigrants who don't contribute, they, they stay on benefits, and that's why, you know, social assistance, unemployment benefits, that, that should be made harsher. And the third aspect we've been looking at is the area of social investment. So social investment policies refers to areas um, that are about skill formation, about human capital formation. So let us remember that the welfare state is not only here to protect you against social risks when social risks already occurred, but it's also meant to prevent social risk from actually happening by giving you education and therefore improving your um, your economic prospects, essentially. And on that, this is very interesting that they are the only party family that do not support education when it comes to um, you know our survey data, when it comes to voters. So they oppose more money for higher education um, and they also oppose more money for childcare. And the reason is that these kind of social investment policies, they're also associated with progressive values. Yeah? So child public provision of childcare is associated with gender equality. So it allows for, it allows women to reconcile work and family life much easier. And therefore you have greater gender equality on the labor market and also um, improve the conditions for a more autonomous um, employment biography. And when it comes to education, it also is associated typically with, with progressive appeals of, of social mobility, of upward mobility, whereas voters of the radical right, they, they prefer um, you know, protection in their current job rather than um, the prospect of a new job thanks to education, thanks to higher education. So this kind of, you know, taken together, yeah, this, this picture, it, it, it draws a more complicated, more nuanced picture in the sense that the deservingness conceptions are very particularistic. So it's only the hardworking, so the pensioners that deserve something, not the unemployed. When it comes to social investment policies that are advocated for by the new middle class, by the young and by women, they are also opposed to that. Um, and seeing it this way, I think it's uh, misleading to consider them a, a pro-welfare party as they are often portrayed to be. I want to go back to the, the second point, which was that there's an emphasis on rewarding the people who work hardest. And this is just anecdotal. But when I lived in Europe, my I, and I was living in Holland for a few years, my sense was geez, these Dutch people don't work very hard. Everything's closed at six o'clock and the only places that are open are these little grocery stores, which are usually owned and, and run by, by immigrants. And it just, it felt like the recent immigrants to Holland were working really hard, whereas many Dutch people did not feel like they worked, they did not feel like they worked very long hours. So I'm wondering, it seems like there's a disconnect between the reality of, immigrants working really hard and the perception from the far right that they're not deserving 
because they don't work hard. And I'm wondering if, if that's true, if just if all that's needed is more education, like to show these people on the far right, no, actually, these are our hardest working people in our society. This is where nativism comes in. Um, so one thing is this is authoritarian bent to say, you know, you, you have to behave um, to and you have to act according to social norms. And one of our social norms is to be hard work. And, and if you don't, well, you, you don't deserve our solidarity. And it, it quickly turns into an individualistic narrative. It's not about capitalism. It's not about the economy. But, you know, you just need to work harder. And when mm -hmm. it comes to what, what you've been alluding to, to that narrative, this is where nativism um, kicks in, in the sense that it's a welfare state, yes, but a welfare state for us. And um, this translates into a policy that is, is um, often called welfare chauvinism, which is to say that, um, yes, we, we support the welfare state, but it should be that the coverage of the welfare state should be restricted to uh, natives rather than immigrants. So you see where these, these ideological features that they are interlinked, um, they, they can be contradictory to some extent, but they stimulate a peculiar set of policies. And one is to say, yeah, policies for us, yeah, first thing, like us being the natives, so to speak, and policies for the hardworking, which is, you know, um, those with long contribution records and worked very hard for over the, the life course. And, and therefore they deserve generous uh, pensions, which is typically um, labor market insiders rather than labor market outsiders with, with more interruptions and a more precarious employment biography. You mentioned that there's less support for these sort of pro-family welfare policies. And, you know, that's curious to me because I remember learning about fascists in the 1920s and 30s in Europe and the, the pro- natalist parties of these nativist parties so the pro-family parties like let's have lots of german kids or lots of italian kids but that doesn't seem to be part of the equation anymore right well it does but i was referring to child care which is something different so child care which um, is different from child benefits so child benefits um, they give an incentive for mothers to to stay at home, to combine, you know, to assume a greater role as caregivers in tandem with part-time employment. And this is what um, the Polish, um, the Peace Party has expanded a lot, actually. Yeah? Wow. And it is, it is precisely termed in the way you do this. So we want, we need Polish kids. And in Hungary as well, we need Hungarian kids. And mm -hmm. the way we do this is not by expanding social investment policies by, you know, um, creating opportunities for women to um, reconcile work family life by childcare or education, but rather by child benefits and therefore restore a more male breadwinner type of family policy. So that is to say that the public domain, the workplace domain is primarily devoted to men. So this is the reservoir of men, whereas women, they, they should be caregivers, they should look after kids, and given that this is no longer economically sustainable, they should do like part-time employment. And this is a different type of family policy that um, is different from, from the social investment um, areas I was alluding to. A couple of months ago, we talked with uh, a professor 
who was a, a lecturer in politics at the University of Bath named Ar Arlene Mondon, who is a, an, an expert on the far right in France. And he was talking to us about how Macron is starting to take many of the policies of the far right as his own. And, and you spoke earlier on about Trump being this sort of strange politician who is in a mainstream political party, a, that party itself is, is adopting the far right's rhetoric and policies. And I'm wondering if we see that in other countries where you have a center right party, which is starting to become in terms of policy indistinguishable from the far right. Yes, we, we see those developments to some extent, even though we have to be careful um, in the sense that, you know, uh, what are the policies we are talking about? So if we talk about, you know, the viability of liberal democracy, mm -hmm. like in, in Hungary and Poland, so this is something we see in, le so the, the demise of liberal democracy, we see in democracies that are less consolidated. So you wouldn't um, expect, or it's less likely at least to expect that. Um, to see in Western Europe. If well, we, you know, but it's true, but in the United States, we're so consolidated here and it really felt like we were at the end of the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we, we have to uh, be attentive. I agree with you, definitely. But still, we have stronger institutions there and, and there are, you know, there's a fairer party competition context. Mm -hmm. and, but I, I agree with you and this is something um, we can also take from the work of uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson who show that the Republican Party radicalized not under Trump, but over decades. And right. this is a, a, a more long-term development. And one reason being the Republican Party radicalized in economic policy terms, like really aggressive neoliberal um, policy that no longer resonated with electoral majorities. And one way to still gain a majority, and that is the, the, the argument advanced by Hacker Pearson is well, you, you need an anti-immigration agenda. You need a, a nativist agenda that can mm -hmm. secure you the white working class vote. So you have, so to speak, a, a cultural agenda on behalf of you know, the, the white working class, or you can politicize them in that direction. At the same time, you have the kind of um, the, the, the super rich uh, on whose behalf you do economic policies in, in a, um, to a greater extent. I mean, if we think about the tax cuts by Trump, if we think about his um, Affordable Care Act, I think it was called, which would have deprived 60 million Americans from healthcare coverage. So this, I mean, this you could have absorbed with, with any other Republican politician probably too. I mean, the, where he um, diverged from the Republican establishment was trade protection. And you could say, you know, um, which also has to do with the political economy of the US. You have current account deficits and you have a welfare state that lacks a lot of political support. So you need to do something else. And one thing, one way of how you protect um, or, or you may try to protect workers from the Rust Belt is to say, look, um, we put limits on economic competition, especially unleashed by free trade agreements. And thereby we might restore manufacturing employment. So you see how different country contexts give rise to different policy responses, even though you address similar voters. Um, and both in the US under Trump, as well as in uh, Western Europe under the radical right, so that the electoral stronghold is really white men with 
lower levels of education, primarily, you know, blue collar workers or small shop owners. Thank you.